This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. The world loves meat. Each one of us in the U.S. eats about 200 pounds of meat per year, which um, makes us one of the top meat-consuming countries in the world, and it's more than twice the global average. So we are a nation of meat eaters living in a world of meat eaters, and global meat consumption is on the rise. But the question is, are we as a species inherently vegetarian or carnivorous? The answer is that we are both. Our species evolved to consume an omnivorous diet that contains both plant and animal products. But today, I'll be giving you a very brief history of our species' relationship with meat. And I have been tasked with the job um, to outline the nutritional benefits and costs of eating meat. Man the hunter. Um, The statement is a catchphrase of our species. It conjures bold images that have dominated academic discourse, the media, and public opinion for decades. Here, a popular artist named Banksy plays with this idea in his piece, The Trolley Hunters. And I urge you to do a search for Man the Hunter on the internet and view the type of images that pop up. There are tens of millions of images, and most of them are a variation on a theme, as you might imagine. The individual images and their content are not what's important. It's the underlying take-home message. And that message is that meat made us human. For well over a century, anthropologists have touted meat consumption as the catalyst for critical watershed moments in our evolutionary past. Things like pair bonding, family formation, neural expansion, tool making, and even cooperation. While the specific role that meat might have played in the evolution of human behavior is debated, one thing is certain. Meat did change the playing field for our earliest ancestors. So our history with meat goes back quite far in our evolutionary past, and how far back continues to be debated. The image you see here dates to approximately 20,000 years ago. This artwork is found on the caves in Lascaux, France, And by the time that the artists were painting these images, it's possible, and likely, that early members of our genus had already been eating meat for millions of years. Hunters living in the Paleolithic did not eat only muscle tissue. Much like contemporary foragers today, they consumed all of the animal, all edible portions of the carcass, which would have included organs, bone marrow, and even, in some instances, the GI tract of the animal, which is a practice called gastrophagy. They would have targeted game animals initially using stone tools, with some early, though controversial, dates putting the first stone tools in Kenya at 3.3 million years ago. Hafted, or stone-tipped spears, came on the scene later, with some finds in the archaeological record dating to around 500,000 years ago in South Africa. Bow and arrow technology later still, possibly around 70,000 years ago. The important point here is that different complex technologies were created, modified, and used to target animal protein, going very far back in human evolutionary history. 
So the question of when is a bit tricky to pin down and is something that we'll be talking about today. The question of why our ancestors turned to meat is slightly less contested. This is a photo of women in the population with whom I work, the Hadza foragers of Tanzania, who live in East Africa. And very rarely do we see or associate women with big game hunting. And so I like to show this photo because it highlights the often very cooperative form that hunting in human populations can take. And on this day, a man killed a Cape buffalo, and there was so much meat that all hands were needed on deck to transport this meat from the butchery site back to the camp. And I was also conscripted to help. I am not on camera. I'm taking the photo. Um, and I'm useless. And I was useless that day as well. So my portion had to be carried in a backpack. Um, it was humiliating, uh, but it was helpful. And as I, I'm not very efficient to carrying anything on my head. So the backpack worked for the day. But when I said all hands on deck, I meant all hands on deck. <laughs> um, so this begs the question, why all the effort? Meat is a concentrated nutrient source that is easy to digest, depending on preparation, which we will talk about later today also. It's high in protein, niacin, essential micronutrients like B-complex vitamins, iron, and fat. It has three major types of fats, trans fatty acids, cholesterol, and triglycerides that are comprised mostly of saturated fatty acids, monounsaturated fatty acids, and polyunsaturated fatty acids, which we often call PUFAs. Two essential fatty acids found in meat are linoleic acid, which is an omega-6, and alpha-linolenic acid, which is an omega-3. These cannot be synthesized by humans, and so we need them. <laughs> they are important for brain growth and function, so we must consume them in our diet. Additional important omega-3 PUFAs that are found in red meat include docosahexaenoic acid, or DHA, and eicosapentaenoic acid, or EPA. These are essential during pregnancy and lactation and have also been shown to reduce the risk of some chronic diseases. Red meat also plays a role in preventing iron deficiency or anemia. And around the world, iron is one of the most commonly deficient nutrients. And this might be linked to the fact that it has low bioavailability, which can be defined as the ease and speed at which a nutrient, like iron, makes its way from the food that we eat to the target tissue. There are two different types of dietary iron, as you might have interpreted from this slide, um, heme and non-heme iron. Non-heme iron is found in both plant foods and animal tissues, and this type of iron is poorly absorbed and has low bioavailability. Heme iron, on the other hand, comes from hemoglobin and myoglobin that's found in animals. And this type of iron is very bioavailable. For example, while it only contributes to a modest 10 to 15% of total dietary intake in the diet of red meat eaters, it accounts for more than 40% of total absorbed iron. So heme iron is also known to increase the absorption of non-heme iron, which means that meat really is the best source of iron that we can consume. It's important, as delays in global brain function and motor function have been associated with chronic iron deficiency. Heme is also involved in the distinction between red and white meat, which is largely based on the myoglobin content. Myoglobin is the heme iron that contains pigmented proteins which make the meat red in color. So the more myoglobin, the redder the meat. 
Beef has far more myoglobin when compared to chicken, which is considered a white meat. And if you are used to classifying pork as a white meat, you're probably likely to do so based on a very successful advertising campaign from the late 1980s. The slogan pork, the other white meat, was created for the National Pork Board in order to boost sales uh, to compete with chicken and turkey. And the campaign was very effective. So although pork is typically classified as a white meat in culinary contexts, it is most certainly a red meat when it comes to its nutritional composition. And this is important because red meat has certain characteristics that white meat does not, and these are often associated with negative health outcomes. Associations reported with colorectal um, cancer and other carcinomas, atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes, and potentially other inflammatory processes as well. There are many proposed explanations for these disease associations, such as saturated fat, high salt intake, and environmental pollutants that may be contaminating red meat. Another mechanistic explanation is the metabolic incorporation of a non-human sialic acid called NU5GC. And much of this groundbreaking work is being done right here at UCSD at the medical school in Ajit Varki's lab. Sialic acids are a family of monosaccharides that are widely distributed in animal tissues and to a lesser extent other organisms. And they're located at the very distal end of sugar chains that are connected to the surfaces of cells and proteins. We lost the enzyme synthesizing NU5GC in our evolutionary past, yet trace amounts are still found in humans. So even though it's a foreign molecule to the human body, we incorporate small amounts from the red meat that we consume. Red meat contains very high amounts of NU5GC. I did a postdoc in Ajit's lab and played a very small role in a very large project that attempted to quantify the amount of NU5GC in commonly consumed foods in the human diet. And um, NU5GC is in all animal products, so anything associated with red meat, which would include dairy products as well. Eating red meat, or the products of red meat, allows for the metabolic incorporation of this NU5GC into human tissues. So the immune system recognizes it as a foreign threat and then produces antibodies to counter it. So repeated consumption of red meat can cause chronic inflammation, which has been known to increase risks of tumor formation. NU5GC has been linked to cancer, as well as cardiovascular and other inflammatory diseases. And all available evidence supports this, including studies that have been done with mice with humanized sialic acids. So despite these disease risks, um, red meat consumption around the world is on the rise. As much of the world is protein deficient, red meat is a good source of protein. And not only protein, but also iron, which we've talked about. So perhaps the solution then, according to many nutritionists, is just to eat less meat. The American Institute for Cancer Research recommends that we don't eat more than about 18 ounces of red meat per week. If the world does continue its upward trajectory, however, how will we feed an expected global population of 9.7 billion by 2050? According to the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations, about 60% of the world's ice-free land surface is currently dedicated to raising crops and providing grazing land for the animals that we eat. So this is supporting around 360 million cattle and 600 million sheep and goats. About 788 million acres are used almost exclusively for livestock. 
a recent census of agriculture by the USDA, estimates that this totals up to about 40% of all of the tillable land in the U.S. And many food scientists argue that this level of production is unsustainable. So sustainable alternative feeds for cattle are now being introduced, like microalgae, sugarcane, or brewer's grains, which are the solid residue that are the product of germinated and dried cereal grains um, used to make beer. Diets are also switching to alfalfa, which reduces methane emissions in cattle. So in addition to coming up with more sustainable feed for livestock, people are trying to come up with ways to make the entire food system more sustainable. And some estimates suggest that in order to produce 1 billion kilograms of beef today, we're only using about 88% of the water that we did in 1970, and only about approximately 67% of the land. In addition to coming up with this more sustainable feed for livestock, people are trying to come up um, with ways to just make the entire system uh, more efficient. And this effort extends to reducing waste outputs as well. So the amount of manure, for example, has been reduced by 18% compared to 1977. And in addition, the overall carbon footprint per billion kilos of beef produced in 2017 was reduced by over 16% compared to the same footprint from the late 1970s. But while they might be down, livestock still contribute to greenhouse gas emissions. As of last year in 2017, the FAO estimated that globally, livestock contributes to about 14.5% of all anthropogenic or man-made greenhouse gas emissions due to enteric fermentation and manure. Some estimates suggest that emissions may be similar to those produced by the transportation industry, although this figure is very controversial, suggesting that cows might emit uh, emit as much gas on Earth as vehicles. Um, So some in the agricultural industry caution that these are not easy comparisons to make, and other factors are, of course, at play. But one thing that conservationists in agricultural industry agree on is that livestock does contribute to a substantial percentage of greenhouse gases in the world. The agricultural industry is making strides, however, to reduce gas output by introducing feeds that create less belching in cows, improving breeding um, in a way that animal health um, interventions are done differently. And the FAO argues that if herd sizes were to shrink based on these best practices, that would mean fewer yet more productive livestock. So in addition to belching and passing gas, Cows also produce a lot of manure. It's the end point of their digestion, and it also produces nitrous oxide. So there are many fascinating new practices being developed that are turning manure into electricity, electricity which is then being sold back to the grid. So the costs of meat production are high. And beyond the environmental costs, there's a segment of nutrition science, um, as well as animal rights activists, that are arguing for the elimination of meat consumption altogether. But given the global rise in consumption patterns, this doesn't seem to be the most likely future outcome. So despite the nutritional benefits of consuming meat, there are significant health and environmental costs of consumption as well. That being said, as we'll hear about today, our species has a very long relationship with red meat. It is one of the hallmarks of human evolution. So the question I leave you with, and one that I borrowed from Ajit Varki, has meat in human evolution gone from a blessing to a curse? Thank you.
You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.